Father, we're mindful this morning that we are first and foremost a family. Because of the work of Jesus, our faithful older brother, we have been made partakers in the gospel. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and you, God, are our Father. And we look to you with dependence this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would lift up Christ for us, that you would help us to see how the promises you made to David were only able to be fulfilled in a shadowy near form. And in Christ, the fullness has come. There are many enemies around us. Reminders of the fall are chronic. They're everywhere we look. We're reminded that this world has been broken and that Christ has came to redeem and restore and to reconcile. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would capture our hearts this morning, clear away all the noise and distraction, and, and help us to see Christ, not only crucified and risen, but reigning now at your right hand to come back and to usher in and to complete all that he started in his first coming. So we look to him now and ask for your help. In Christ's name, amen. There can be a lot of power packed into a promise. A future promise can deliver present hope. Like most dogs, our pup Rosie goes bonkers when we ask her if she wants to go for a walk. She prances and pants around the house until we deliver on that promise. Our kids hold on to the promise of a two-day trip alone with Nicole or I when they turn 10. And they anticipate this and they plan for it years in advance. But here's the thing. A promise depends on how reliable the promise maker is. Promises that are delivered by an undependable and unreliable source offer no hope at all. We just heard Hadley read some sweeping promises that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is an important chapter in the Bible. And it's not just important for David and Israel. It's important for, for you and for me. It's important for the church of Jesus in our generation. Because the promises are only fulfilled in a small way in David's lifetime. But they whisper to us of a greater fulfillment. And because these promises won't ultimately be secured through David's son Solomon, but through Jesus. And there's a lot packed into these promises because God is dependable. God wants to deliver on his promises, and God is powerful enough to keep his promises. He has good intentions, and he has a strong arm. And here's my summary of these promises, laboring to make them as simple and clear as possible. Here's the promise that God will send a descendant of David who will establish a kingdom. And in that kingdom, his people will live forever with peace and rest from all their enemies. There's a king, there's a land, and there's a people who will rest from their enemies. The future promise of God can deliver present joy now. We're not only waiting. The fact that this promised kingdom is coming is of great encouragement to us now. It's why when you visit a nursing home or an ICU or a hospice center, you can feel a Christian's hope. You see Christians stubbornly looking forward toward their eternal joy, knowing the best of their lives has not been in the past. 
The best is yet to come. And that promise of a future rest from our enemies causes Christians to maintain a loose grip on the things of this life because our heads and our hearts are already seated with Christ. And that doesn't make living and dying well easy. It makes living and dying well possible. Grief from all the things that are broken in this world are animated by this resolute, steadfast hope. So this morning we have just two movements, God's promise and David's response. Let's look at God's promise in verses 1 through 17. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Something's bothering David. He's living in a new house. He's renovated Jerusalem, and then he sees that the Lord has no temple to live in. And at first, Nathan the prophet gives him the green light, but then God's word comes to Nathan that night and says, no, I don't need a temple to dwell in. In fact, I'm going to build David a house. And that's where the promises begin to unfold. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of all the earth. The first promise to David is a name, a famous name in all the earth. I scooped you up, David, from the pastures when you were shepherding sheep, and I've made you a prince over all my people, Israel. I've cut off your enemies. I've been with you, and your name will be great in all the earth. That's the first part of the promise. The second part of the promise is a land to rest in. Look at verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Think for a moment about Israel's history up until this point and what good news this would have been to their ears. Up until this point, Israel has mainly been a sojourning people, or they've been fending off attacks from their enemies. They've been in and out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness. They've tried to conquer the land. They've been ruled by judges, all the while being attacked by enemies. What good news that the Lord is going to appoint a place where God's people can live, where God's people can rest from the enemies around them. You will be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict you no more. I will give you rest. No longer will you be sojourners. The second promise is a land of rest. And the third part of this promise is a descendant. Look at verse, the, the rest of 11. Moreover, the very end of verse 11, 
The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David, an offspring is going to come from your body. And there's a few things to see here. God says that he will establish a kingdom and that this kingdom will be for my name, a kingdom that will glorify me. And he says that this kingdom will be eternal. It will be endless and everlasting. The king that will come from David will reign forever. But this is where it gets complicated in verses 14 through 16, where God says, I will be a father to him and he will be like a son for me. And when he sins, I'll discipline him. But I won't do to him what I did to Saul. In other words, I won't yank the kingdom away. Instead, my steadfast love will remain on your descendant. This relationship, this kingdom will forever be before me. And your house will be established forever. Now, God doesn't use the word covenant in 2 Samuel 7. But David refers to it that way in 2 Samuel 23. And it's referred to that way in Psalm 89. This is the Davidic covenant. And the, and the covenant promises that God makes to David can be summarized as a name, a land, and a descendant. One author said that it's like God is gathering up the covenant that he made with Abraham and he's refocusing it in David. And this king will reign forever over a kingdom where God's people can rest from their enemies. Now, the reason this is somewhat complicated is some of these things seem obviously to point forward to Christ, and some of them don't. Some of them don't seem to fit at all. So that's the challenge. When were or when will these promises be fulfilled? Now, we have some partial fulfillment of this promise here in David's son Solomon. David and his son Solomon will expand the borders of Israel more than any time in Israel's history. And they will deliver peace from the nations around Israel. The land of Israel will become a place of peace, a place of security for the people of Israel. But only for a time. We see very quickly that things begin to unravel. And this chart may help to help us to visualize it. So you can see here, David and Solomon are ruling around 1000 BC. And during their reign, Israel experiences somewhat of a rest from their enemies. But only a generation later, this kingdom will be divided. David's grandson, Solomon's sons, will divide the kingdom into north and south. And only a few generations later, Israel begins to be exiled from the land starting in 733 BC first by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And even when Israel returns to the land, a small remnant returns to the land beginning in 538 BC, they're ruled not by their own kings, they're ruled by foreign kings, first by the Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans who are still ruling when Jesus comes to earth the first time. So we could see that if Solomon is the fulfillment of these Davidic promises, then it is not an enduring, everlasting, endless kingdom that's coming. It's only one generation. And so we see some of these things captured in a near fulfillment in Solomon, 
But these promises are driving us forward. They're whispering of a greater fulfillment for David and his people. So who is David's descendant? David's descendant is the child that Isaiah predicted 300 years after David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will do it. Who is the David's descendant? He's the son. Matthew opens the New Testament recounting. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This descendant of David is the king whom Gabriel foretold. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This descendant of David is the one that Paul preached about in Antioch. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. So the prophets and the gospels and acts make it clear that Jesus is the son that God predicted through David. He's David's offspring, the one that we've been waiting for. The question is, how would Jesus give us this rest from our enemies? How would Jesus secure endless rest for us? Here's Hebrews 9. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And here's Colossians 2. And you who were dead in trespasses and and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is the king who would silence our enemies. And not just for two generations. Jesus is the king who will provide ultimate, endless rest from every enemy, from sin and death and Satan. But here's the question. If Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what God promised through David, then why do we still battle sin? Why do we still endure suffering and grief? And why do we still face the sadness of death? It's because Jesus' work is spread across both of his comings. The chart behind me shows you what Jesus came to begin at his first coming. He comes the first time as a suffering servant. He comes the first time to inaugurate, to begin, to usher in a kingdom. And he dies and he rises And he returns to the Father, and he gives the church the great commission to take this hope of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And when he comes again in the future, he will come as a conquering king. 
and His kingdom will be consummated. It will be completed. And then the church will rest from our enemies. And this is why it's so critical that we keep our perspective. We are living between two comings. We know Jesus will return soon, and when He comes, He will complete what He started at His first coming. He will give us rest from our enemies. John 14, Jesus says to comfort His disciples before He goes to the cross, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If there weren't rooms for you, if there wasn't room for you, would I tell you that I'm going to prepare a place? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. There is a place, church, for us. We are sojourning now, but there is a place that Jesus is preparing for us. And the question then is, how do we wait? How do we faithfully wait between His first coming and His second coming, between the suffering servant and the conquering king, between kingdom, kingdom uh, inaugurated and kingdom consummated? How do we wait well and faithfully for Jesus to deliver endless, joyful rest? We see it in David's response in verses 18 to 29. David responds to the promise of God by sitting down before the Lord. In the first part of David's prayer, he responds with humility. God's promise to make his name great. And look at David's response. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. David's first response to these promises is humility. Who am I, Lord? Who is my house? Who is my father and mother that you would do this thing to me? David understands that he sits on Israel's throne because of God's initiative and grace alone. Without God's intervention, David would still be shepherding sheep in Bethlehem. Instead, he is the prince of Israel. David begins with humility. The second part of David's prayer responds to God's promise to provide his people with a land to rest in a space to experience rest from their surrounding enemies. And David's response to this second part of God's promise is gratefulness. Look at verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no one beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things, by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself a people Israel to be your people forever, and you, Lord, became their God. David recounts the past faithfulness of God. Not only did you redeem your people from Israel, 
Not only did you choose them to be your people and to set them apart as your people, and not only did you rescue them from slavery through great and awesome acts of wonder, but you made them your own people. You made them your own. You didn't just free them from slavery, but you made them your own. And then the third part of David's prayer focuses on this descendant that God promised. And David's response here is one of anticipation. He calls on God to act according to his word. You said it, God. Do according to all that you have planned. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now listen to verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. In this second section of the passage, beginning in verse 18, I count 10 times in these 12 verses that God speaks or promises or reveals. This whole thing is based on the promise of God. Based on your promises, this is how I'm responding. With humility, why me? With gratefulness over your past faithfulness and with anticipation that God, you will act according to your word. You are a dependable promise keeper. You desire to keep your promises and you have a strong arm to keep your promises. I hardly need to convince us that we need a long rest from our enemies. A few of us visited Lois Martin this week. Lois is 102, and she's been a member of Cherrydale since 1966. And after we sang, and after we read, and after we talked a while, we asked Lois what we could pray about. And her answer, don't pray for good health. I've lived long enough. (laughs) Lois is hungry to rest from her enemies. I'm not talking about the people who live next door. I'm talking about she understands the reality of living in enemy territory. She understands what it is to be a sojourner and a pilgrim, and she longs to be with her Lord. She longs to be with the one she loves. She longs to go and be with him. She longs for a resurrected body. She's responding to the promise of God with anticipation. Our struggles with sin make us long for rest from our enemies too. It's not just that our bodies wear and get old. The reality of sin in our hearts and around us also longs, causes us to long for freedom from sin. Here's the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love the law of God. I delight in it. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, the Apostle Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is saying there are two things happening. There is a real war waging in my heart 
On the one hand, I have embraced the gospel and the Spirit as at work in my life. And on the other hand, I am dogged constantly by my sin nature. Entrenched sin patterns rise up and resist the gospel transformation that the Spirit is bringing about in my heart. And so Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this war that's happening in my own soul? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Paul's answer. Of course, blinding and confusing all of this is our enemy, Satan. It's not just that our bodies wear out and age. It's not just that we have this inward turmoil over our sin struggle. It's also that we have an enemy, Satan, who is blinding and confusing everything around us, who works to distort and to distract and to deceive. An enemy who has been dealt a death blow, but staggers on through creation wreaking havoc. And here's a reminder from Richard Sibbs. Christ's work in us, it shall be victorious. The reign of Christ and his truth shall at length be victorious in spite of Satan and all enemies. One day soon, we will live in a land where King Jesus will deliver endless rest from every enemy that wages war against us. And so how do we respond? David's a good example Responding with humility and gratefulness and anticipation of what God is going to do. But in Hebrews 11, the author parades a long line of godly men and women who were marked by the same things. Here's Hebrews 11:13. These, that is the godly men and women he's just spoken about, these people all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They didn't receive the promises themselves, but they saw them and they greeted them from afar and they welcomed them. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they're pilgrims, they're sojourners, they're not home. They see and they hear the promises and they long for them, but they're waiting. Waiting as strangers and exiles, not unpacking in this world, but, but longing for what's to come. For people who speak thus, people who speak this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. They could have gone back to where they were. No, they long to go forward. They long to go into the future. They long for the future homeland. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Cherrydale, very soon we will be in that endless rest. We will experience rest from every and each enemy. And it will come soon, and it will be total and complete and whole and endless. We will no longer be sojourners and pilgrims. We will be home. We will be exactly where Jesus has prepared a place for us. It's coming. Rest from aging and illness. Rest from temptations and sin. Rest from pandemics and earthquakes. It's coming. 
And that future promise doesn't just sit there in the future. That future promise works itself back to provide present hope. A foretaste of that rest can be savored now in Christ. Future promises provide hope now. Knowing a vacation is coming provides energy to keep plotting. So church, dig deep with me. Our rest is coming. And until it comes, let's be marked by humility and gratefulness over what God has done and anticipation of what will come. If I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful this morning for the hope of a total and endless rest from every enemy. This is a work that you ensured in your first coming and a work that we will experience in its fullness when you return. And so on the one hand, we are driven by that future hope. Our anchor is in our future. And on the other hand, we experience that hope and rest now. And so we pray that you would sustain us. Lord Jesus, you are our rock and anchor, and we build our entire life upon you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.